Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this episode, we bring you the final instalment of the Women in National Security miniseries, produced in collaboration with Accenture, a special recording from the Women in National Security live event. Our hosts Gabe Brotman and Meg Tapia are joined by Nina Davidson from the Office of National Intelligence... Catherine Byrne from the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, and Abigail Bradshaw from the Australian Cybersecurity Centre. The panel answer audience questions, addressing issues of gender equality, leadership and authenticity. Drawing on live opinion polling results at the event, Gay and Meg discuss personal heroes and the use of gender targets, among other topics. Enjoy. Hello, Canberra. <laughs> Welcome to the Women in National Security podcast, recording live at the National Gallery of Australia. This is amazing. Uh, I'm Meg Tapia. And I'm Gay Brotman. <laughs> and we're delighted to have you all uh, joining us today. Um, don't show hands because people at home listening won't be able to see that, but maybe a clap. Who's excited to be here? <laughs> Gay and I started this pod because we genuinely believe uh, in the importance of inclusion and diversity in our national security leadership and across the workforce. So it's really fantastic to see all of these amazing women in front of me here today. Um, what a year it's been. I want to begin by acknowledging the traditional landowners, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and I thank them for their contribution to this region. Gay, how are you feeling? What do you think about this audience? It's just fantastic. It's, um, well, we had this vision of this happening at the beginning of the year, uh, but we never actually thought it would happen. And so the fact that it's happened and it's so hugely popular, I mean, it was sold out, the first release was sold out, and so we had to expand the space. So it's just extraordinary uh, to have your support. Thank you so much for being here today and making the dream come true in many ways. Yeah, that's right. So thank you all. Um, and we want to show our appreciation and say thank you by uh, having you, the audience, ask the questions, as Chelsea had said um, at the outset. Um, but before we uh, throw to the audience, for questions, I want to throw to Gay for uh, to do the honours with the first question today. Yeah, and uh, just before I do that, I also want to acknowledge not just you, but also the team that has been behind this, behind this journey right from the start. So a big shout out and thanks to Caroline Van Heusen, who we heard from before. Please put your hands together for these people because it wouldn't have happened without them. <laughs> to the fabulous Chelsea Muir in pink over here. To the fabulous Tim Wilford, looking 
absolutely glamorous in the velvet and the bow tie over there. To Sarah No, I don't know where you are, Sarah, but to the fabulous Sarah, thank you. And also to Hamish Lardy. Now, did Hamish end up coming today? No, he's still up in Cairns okay. enjoying the sunshine. Okay. Yeah, okay. So thank you for your patience, uh, particularly in the early days uh, when there were many retakes and many reassessments as we got into the groove on this. And also a bigger and even bigger shout out and thank you to you, our audience. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for your feedback throughout the year. It's been terrific, not just through emails uh, and also just comments on social media, but particularly when we're out and about in the community. Thank you for being part of our journey. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a real privilege. So today is about celebrating the incredible female talent we have in this room and in this nation in the national security space. And as part of that celebration, as Meg has said, you got to ask the questions. So our first question is to the panel and it's from the broader audience. Uh, it sort of comes in two parts so you can answer it as, um, as you like. First part, how can we better our skills as policymakers to develop complex policy that meets the challenges of today and responds adequately to complexities in the security environment? And kind of the second part is, what's one skill that you've learned in your national security journey that you'd like to share with the audience? There's a, there's a lot there. Yes, yeah, there's there a, lot there. a lot there. There is a lot there. And can I just say how fantastic it is to, to look out from this vantage point and see you all. Um, so... Uh, when, when I sort of think about what is it that we need to do in this complexity, it's actually something Alexandra and I were talking about over, over lunch. Uh, what comes to my mind is that we are in this uh, world with so much complexity, so many multiple challenges that interconnect. No one person, department, discipline uh, can solve the problems that we're facing or seize the opportunities so it's, it's about working across boundaries, working together, uh, and in doing that, really sort of understanding, engaging you know, with colleagues to understand different takes and perspectives on, on issues, and, and uh, it's, it's about collaborative problem solving, and that's one of the really great things uh, that um, uh, I uh, like about working as part of the national intelligence community. You know, we're a, a set of very diverse agencies different roles, um, capabilities, authorities. Uh, what we're about is, uh, as a community is, is how we kind of come together and work together uh, so that we're more than the sum of our, our parts and, and uh, work to pursue opportunities, as I say, and solve problems uh, t together. And for me, you know, if I, I sort of think about what that um, translates to, you know, as, I guess, a skill or maybe it's a way of working... It, it is that uh, collaborative uh, approach. There's a lot that sits within that, uh, but, but that, that's the thing that I would highlight. Great. Thanks, Abby. I would agree with just about everything, um, well, not just about, with everything Nina has said, <laughs> without qualification, which is kind of weird for O&I, but in any case. <laughs> There you go. Um, I'm not an assessor. What would I know? Um, I'm going to just... I'm going to riff off Nina and just take it a little step further. Just to let me give you some practical examples um, about that collaboration. Take a problem like cyber security. I can't resolve that 
not with the fabulous Nina, not with the awesome Catherine, or with any of my national security buddies alone, actually. I have to work with a whole range of, goodness me, social policy agencies, um, other <laughs> massive operational arms within the Australian government, like Services Australia, who, who are awesome, um, I must say. Um, and my job actually is probably one of the greatest examples of that synthesis of collaboration, where I take the most highly classified possible um, information from our Five Eyes and turn it into something that I can send out um, on an internet-facing portal to 26 million Australians in a way that is usable and practicable. And I couldn't do that without the collaboration not only of, of Nina and Catherine's agency and lots of other agencies, but actually with our industry partners um, as well. I kind of also want to challenge you to turn that question on its head. I, I don't like complex policy. I actually think there are complex problems, but the best policies are actually principles-driven and simple. So I'll leave that thought with you. Um, okay, so I agree with everything that uh, <laughs> Nina and Abby have said. Um, That's a first. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm just going to again clarify where I am from, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service. And the reason I thought I would emphasise that is because it's quite unusual to have that emphasised or even to have that said publicly. And, um, and so this really is, is just a... a really the second or third time that I've been able to say that. Um, and, uh, and it's so important that I'm able to do this. Um, we still get mistaken all the time for ASIO. We still get mistaken for ACIC. We get mistaken for ACCC. Um, we get mistaken for ISIS. Um, we, we, we get mistaken for a whole range of other agencies but it is time that we actually um, had our name out there and our brand, but also because we do contribute to the collaboration and clearly the national intelligence community. I think, um, I think the only thing really that I can add is actually sort of to narrow it maybe a little bit um, to, to the intelligence community. And there's a really important role for intelligence community in influencing, shaping policy, um, for all the strategic challenges that we're facing. So uh, it, it's, it's incumbent on people in this community to be able to really uh, understand the role of intelligence, understand what the agencies involved in intelligence can bring to policy and how we, we can work with policy makers to, so that they can know and understand what this intelligence actually means for informing policy so that we get good decision-making. And that's, that, that, that's the reason we do intelligence, so that it's a government requirement, it's for policymakers to consider so that we do get good policy for the strategic challenges. Um, just for the skill, I just thought I'd quickly mention a skill. We, um, uh, it's a bit, it is cheating because it's a few skills in one, but I really believe that the skill that uh, I have learnt and got better as I you know, went through my career is networking. I think that we often forget that networking is a skill 
and this is clearly a fantastic demonstration of that. But networking, if you really are going to do networking, it needs good communication skills, it needs interpersonal skills, it needs relationship building, it needs courage. Uh, All those things and all those reasons to be in a room like this but then to continue the contacts, um, continue growing with, with people that you meet because most of you are going to be in this this community, I would suggest, for many years to come. So the skill that I really would suggest that you all take on board as a skill is networking. Thank you. Um, I've observed another skill just by watching the three of you, and that is agree with smart women. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're going to throw to the audience now. I believe we've got a question from Andrea Wang. Hello. Thank you, panel. Um, Andrea Wang from the Australian Signals Directorate. This question is for you, Nina. I'm curious on learning on what you see as Australia's black swan moment strategically. Thanks, uh, Andrea, for your question. It's a, it's a big question. Um, and I think you'll probably see some threads through um, what I talk about t- today. For me... It's less about a moment, and of course, if we think in black swan terms, you know, they are things that are inherently unpredictable. For me, I, I think it's it's all that's in play at the moment. You know, we are uh, our strategic environment is more complex and uncertain than it has been for decades. We're, we're just facing a, a set of uh, changes and, and challenges that that we we haven't confronted uh, before. Um, I'll, I'll sort of run through what I see as some of the, the dimensions of that, and it's not all of them, but it's some of the dimensions of that. And look, you know, you'll, you'll be familiar with much of this, but th- they are such, in their own right, significant uh, changes and forces. Uh, and what I'll come back to is interconnectedness. It's also how things might play out and the interconnectedness as they do, how things can cascade and compound in ways that are inherently unpredictable. And I think they're, you know, that, that, that's how I sort of see uh, the significant um, uh, um, challenges or possibilities in our environment. You know, we're, we're in a period of uh, intensifying uh, major power competition um, uh, and that's um, across all elements of, of national power. Um, uh, and within that, uh, there's a less remote prospect uh, than there has been, again, for some time of, of major power conflict. Um, we uh, playing into that uh, is technological change. Um, uh, technology uh, matters and brings so much to our economies, our societies, to the capabilities of government, um, it's hard to know, you know, what in the future as other technologies that are, that are going to really be the game changers and what's that going to look like. Um, there are threats and opportunities in that. Part of that with the increasing um, dependence of so many things on technology is the increasing cyber threat, you know, the work that Abby and colleagues um, uh, do to... Uh, defend us uh, on on that front, be alert to the threats that are are coming. We've got changes in our natural systems. We've seen this through the pandemic, climate change, of course. Um, 
the, the global economy. We're in a period of uh, fragility and, and heightened risk. There's lots of reasons for that. Pa pandemic uh, consequences, the consequences of Russia's invasion uh, of Ukraine, uh, changes in, in policy, all, all of those things. Uh, as well as that, there's a, an array of other threats and challenges um, that persist but also evolve. So they're pointing to just some terrorism, transnational crime, and so many of these things fit together and, in my view, come together more and more um, in, in the, world, the, you know, the world that we're now in. And so when I sort of think about the things that, that might, uh, that, that I think will do and will sort of challenge us in the future, it's how multiple things, might, you know, might come together, cascade and compound, and then how do we sort of work through that? And it goes back to the complex problems point, you know, that, that Abby highlighted and what we're going to need to bring, um, you know, collectively to, to those challenges. And challenges, and I'd also say opportunities, you know, so we're not always sort of thinking through that threat or challenge lens. Nina, you mentioned technology there. Can I pivot to you, Abby, if you don't mind? Because we're seeing an uptick in, or appears to be an uptick in cyber um, intrusions really? and, and events. <laughs> um, and and I, I wonder, what are your thoughts on the idea of a cyber-specific black swan event? Um, okay, so perhaps, um, perhaps the best sort of comparison to that at the moment might be, say, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the use which we observed for the first time on a sustained basis of integration of cyber into conventional warfare. So the augmentation of conventional warfare tactics by use of cyber techniques. Um, and I think um, what... Um, there were many magnificent media um, headlines and so-called experts who, who commented on the absence of a cyber apocalypse, but for people who actually work in the business um, and know anything, none of us actually expected a cyber apocalypse. In fact, what's more effective and has shown to be very effective, despite media commentary to the contrary, um, uh, in, in Ukraine has been that sustained use of cyber. So starting with DDoS attacks um, and, and importantly for our own preparation to avoid such a black swan incident against government entities and critical infrastructure. And I think in this country we have had some pretty good policy and legislative foresight there in the, in the um, preparation and passage of the systems of national significance critical infrastructure legislation, which in fact is world leading. It gives specific obligations to critical inf infrastructure entities to meet a minimum cyber security um, standard. But those attacks, um, low grade but sustained and constant and, and sustained all the way through on critical infrastructure for three main purposes. So um, going back to the principles basis. In the first instance, to degrade um, uh, communication and try and isolate that country from communicating with allies, to degrade the capacity for the country's government and leaders to speak with its own people, to undermine the social confidence of Ukrainians about the, the government's capacity to defeat Russia, and lastly, to undermine the mobilisation of um, uh, defence 
uh, and military um, forces in, in its own defence. So I, th- I think the task for us is to, is to learn from Ukraine and, in fact, observe the, the great achievement not only in, a, um, in the defeat of very significant conventional warfare forces, but, the, but, but to admire and learn from their investment in cyber resilience which was attained actually not only by the assistance of US Cyber Command who went in and helped them and and other allies, but actually because companies, private companies, and this is the point about um, collaboration, private companies like Microsoft and a bunch of others who don't necessarily want to be named chose a side. And aren't we lucky they chose Ukraine's side? And that has reinforced my own personal emphasis on the partnerships which I regard as as really important to defending this country into a future which Nina has so beautifully described for us as as one in which I think is the most significant I've ever encountered in my reasonably short lifetime. And I look at my sons, who are 12 and 16, and know that what we do today will determine the life that they have in the future. Thank you. Uh, before we go to the next question, I just uh, do you want to just check out Slido and what oh, the yeah. Yeah, results of that saying? are? Thanks, everyone, who have participated in this. If you haven't, then get on now uh, so that we can get your results before the end of the podcast. But uh, the one I love is... Um, just going to who is a woman who you admire? I put down my mum, and it looks like a lot of you did too. Sorry, we've just gone to the next one. Do you want to talk about that one? Um, yeah, and and I put down my grandmother. Actually, I love my mum very much. Um, but when I think about the women who've really inspired me, actually, it's it's my two grandmothers. Um, one was a translator for the courts. She spoke seven languages. She was amazing. Um, uh, and the other was a school teacher. She taught history, and she just taught so many kids. And and the reason that they're my inspiration is because um, they were just so passionate about what they did. So it's really great to see that. Um, what is the most valuable to you as a woman working in national? security and a lot of people are saying it's culture which is really interesting Um, culture and then diversity coming through mentors training promotion opportunities are there but really it's about the culture and I want to say that it's up to all of you as well as the leaders to be able to create that culture so be proactive in being a part of that okay can we have the next one do you support the use of diversity targets in workplaces? As someone who's been a very strong supporter and advocate of this for decades, uh, it's terrific to see that uh, 85, 84% of you have said yes, um, nine, I don't know, and, um, and 7% no. Really interesting results there, but that's pretty resounding in my view. Yeah, really overwhelming. Can I get um, your thoughts from the panel about the idea of targets? Because, Abby, of course, we know that you have them at ASD and ACSC, but what about in some of the other agencies? What are the thoughts there about that? Or is that secret, Kath? Not at all. We're, we're about to um, actually publish our diversity and inclusion strategy on our website. So that will be another first. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're catching up uh, slowly. Um, but uh, it, it, is a, it is a complex issue, but I think ultimately uh, we, we don't have equality yet in the workplace. And 
if we want to link it to the first question and the answer, um, uh, link it to culture, uh, if we don't have equality, uh, it's hard to actually then influence the culture to be the culture that we want for not only ourselves but for the generations coming after us. So uh, quite often, unfortunately, the things that get done or the things that are changed are the things that are measured. And if you don't have measures, um, it, uh, you, you might not achieve anything. So I, I think the rationale for a target is really sound and really important until we get to a point of equality. Uh, I mean, I look in our organisation and in my previous organisation, um, we had very few Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people working in the organisation. Uh, we need to do more. And we know that, and a target will help us. It, it will put the pressure on us. It will mean that we actually put resources and time and effort and energy into achieving what we really do need to be achieving if we want to improve our organisations and the culture. So, I, I, I mean, and I think that that's going to be a similar sentiment for most in the room. Yeah, it's uh, just in terms of that, the, if you don't actually, it focuses the mind. Uh, we found that with boards, and we found that with ASX boards, which are still some are performing very badly. I remember a very prominent male Australian saying years ago that there was no female talent, so therefore that's why the, their numbers so, were so bad on boards. And uh, he was, yes, very gladly derided for that. But uh, yeah, as a result of getting targets on private and pu particularly public sector boards, we've now actually seen what fifty percent on government boards. Um, I know that in politics, we in the Labor Party we do that too and uh, in terms of getting um, a focus on it so it's really important and I've been long advocating for a 40% rule uh, for national security events no 40% panel no 40% speaker lineup no 40% uh, breakout rooms uh, of females then no government support that's a silence response on there okay I don't think it was that radical I was only going for 40% I could have gone for 100%. Okay, on to the next one. Nina, did you have anything? No? Sorry, on targets? Yes. Um, no, well, I just agree. Um, I, my, my sort of personal view is that, you know, we, we need targets to help drive and anchor change. I'm just looking at my colleague Catherine in the audience and it's something that, you know, we, we you know, as part of our, our, our thinking and, and how we're sort of approaching, uh, approaching things. Yeah. Can, can I offer a view? Sure. I, I'm a believer in equal opportunity. I give my husband equal opportunity to pick up children, make lunches, do the shopping. I think if you, if you take the focus not necessarily off women but share the focus into opening opportunities for everyone to engage in our lives beyond work, whether that's um, paternity leave or maternity leave or options to drop the children off at work. I don't know how many other women out there. I'm single parenting this week as well as just doing a couple of other things at work. And I'm exhausted by the time I arrive with just the mental load of did the son take the key to get back into the house? Was the door shut? Was the cat not locked in my bedroom? Um, sharing that load in the mornings and in the evenings um, is, I think, really important about um, establishing an even participation basis for all women, both um, in the day and more broadly. And it's super important for my two sons to see 
that we are both believers in equal opportunity. Yeah. We'll be right back. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Okay, the next question is um, from Katie Musa. Hi, um, I'm asking a question on behalf of Katie for Abby. Uh, where do you see upcoming opportunities in the security community for women who may not have come from a security background to develop and become a valued member? That is an awesome question. Um, asd.gov.au, <laughs> push recruit. Um, so um, they are absolutely everywhere, um, Katie, uh, because, uh, as Nina set out, Um, for us at the beginning, the skill set that you need to solve national security problems doesn't necessarily come from an intelligence or assessment or spy basis um, uh, alone. Um, My own experience actually within the Cybersecurity Centre in the Signals Directorate is actually we have a large number of um, very different skill sets which contribute to our outcomes. I'll use my organisation as an example. Uh, We need analysts, obviously. We need linguists, um, obviously. Um, We need a highly technical workforce that's capable of prosecuting um, uh, other people's systems to spy on them. Um, uh, But also we need people who are capable of understanding what our threat actors are doing but turning it into plain English so my mum can understand it. So, frankly, I can understand it. I I do not have a a master's degree in computer science but I'm responsible for ensuring that every person that clicks on cyber.gov.au can understand the advice that I'm trying to give them. And so we actually have people who decipher what the technical people are saying so that it's usable by a large audience of other people. We have people who are responsible for networking and going out and meeting industry um, uh, counterparts um, and finding out 
for example, what visibility they have of global networks that might assist us with our own cyber defences. We have graphic artists, people who turn very complex intelligence reports over a period of time into one-page placemats which can describe a threat picture or a threat vector, for example. So what we're looking for actually is diversity in thought that enriches national security rather than a convergence of people with a narrow view because that's how we're going to lose the next decade. So, like I said, if I could just finish that, asd.gov.au. And I'm I'm sure the other intelligence agencies are going to put up their websites now. (laughs) Yeah, I was about to. (laughs) Bit of healthy competition. (laughs) asis.gov.au. Very nice. Um, Our next question is from Sabine Rock to Kath, and I think this continues on the theme of uh, diversity in thought. Hello, Sabine Rock from the Department of Climate Change, Energy, the Environment and Water, DQ, the new kid on the block. Um, I have a question for Catherine. What sort of, I was wondering, what sort of lessons have we learned um, from the last two years of the pandemic, especially when we apply a female lens for impact solutions and preventions? Thank you. Thanks, Sabine. Um, Well, there's no doubt that COVID has impacted on us all, um, personally and professionally, over nearly three years now. Um, and it's had, uh, it's had devastating impacts. Um, I had a family member die of COVID, very unexpected, uh, and I know that everybody has a story to tell. So it, it's, it's impacted. It has been devastating. I think there's, there's two angles to, to look at that question. The first is um, in terms of national security. Uh, I, think, I think what it, what it really did was... I think it's um, honed our view somewhat of the of the enhanced or growing scope of national security. What what actually is a threat to national security, and and the devastating consequences around the world that that we've seen have really indicated that um, national security probably means just about everything. We're seeing it grow into climate, water water security, food security energy uh, and pandemics and if you remember early on um, you know there was a, a, a theory that maybe the uh, the pandemic uh, COVID came from a lab that's been largely debunked but the issue that that, that that really put in the headlight was biological threats and so that's another area of national security that it's really really brought to the forefront and how we as Australia are dealing with that type of threat um, and whether it is natural or not. So I think, I think it's really heightened that awareness in terms of national security. In terms of uh, the other angle is that what, what as organisations uh, and workplaces have we taken away? Um, it's no doubt it impacted our productivity. Uh, we had mandatory lockdowns. Many couldn't get into the workplace but for many of us in the national security community, uh, we had to get into the workplace because you have to be in the workplace to work. And what it showed me was that we were able to adapt. Uh, we were able to be flexible. We were able to change people's hours and working conditions. And we were able to get by. And I think that that's a really good lesson that, that pre-COVID... 
we probably didn't embrace, but it's definitely accelerated the reality that we can be more flexible, that we can do compressed hours or altered hours, that we can do other things. And the reality is if we don't, we won't be very competitive in the workforce market uh, because the other part of COVID is people have got a taste of working from home and shown that people can work from home and people have got a taste of actually what it's like to share in, uh, in carer duties um, all those sorts of things. So, uh, for the na- for the national uh, for the national um, security community, I think that we've got to now just be a little bit bolder, a little bit more courageous, and really not go backwards on the flexibility that we've shown. Um, and I think that that will set us up nicely for the future. And in terms of the female lens, I think I think it's actually a broader question about. People have to. Ha- everybody had to make decisions, and you make the best decisions when you've got that diversity in decision making. So, as long as you've got people from the diverse communities that your decisions are going to impact on around the table making the decision, uh, we'll get the best decisions. Indeed. Kath, you mentioned their adaptability and flexibility, and I want to touch on that because we had a follow-up question um, from the audience from Florinicia Lantang, and she asked about gender-based challenges in the workforce and um, if you'd ever faced a challenge as a woman and how, how you've dealt with those events. And um, I have to admit, I heard a little story. I'm hoping you can elaborate that when you were a police officer, you were issued a handgun as you are, um, but also an operational handbag. What, how, how, how did that feel to you as a woman um, police officer? Good, I got a handbag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, oh, look, I've definitely experienced uh, all those, those sorts of things and actually, unfortunately, in small ways still do. So we've still got a bit of work to do but but I guess with that story I joined the police in the 80s and uh, it was extremely male dominated and even going back to my last comment about diversity of thought and decision making um, there wasn't any so when when it was time to actually issue guns to women who were police because they didn't get guns originally um, guns were reluctantly issued to women but that was all and then it occurred that okay we haven't given them anything to put the gun in um, because we don't give them a belt or a holster because that doesn't go nicely with the uniform we've made for them and so then it was realized that it wasn't working with women walking around with a gun in their hand and so then somebody came up with the bright idea let's give them a handbag to put the gun in so everyone got issued handbags and that made it a, well, a little bit easier, but when you're chasing somebody and having to jump over a fence, um, it wasn't as flexible and as easy, um, but we eventually got through. But I guess, you know, you know, the whole point of that is it was because we didn't have... People didn't understand that, one, you know, women's uniforms are different to men, uh, women's needs are different, and if you're going to issue a gun or if you're going to do something, you have to look at the whole picture. And um, unfortunately, I have many of those stories where uh, there are examples of those things not being considered. Do you still have a handbag? 
No, I don't know what happened to that handbag, actually. I know what happened to the gun, though. <laughs> Just in case you think I left it in the handbag. <laughs> okay, so we've got another question for um, Nina from Anna Parker. Anna? Thank you, uh, Anna Parker, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Um, in your podcast interview, Nina, you spoke about um, it being a time of significant challenge uh, in the national security context, but equally um, that given the nature of the current issues, it's, it's a motivating time to be in your roles. So reflecting broadly on some of these issues, in what ways do you feel that women's lived experiences and perspectives be them diverse, are uniquely able to contribute to approaches and solutions going forward. Thanks. Thanks, Anna. And I'll look, I'll pick up on some threads that we've already covered. You know, for, for me, there are just so many ways. You know, it's hard to be specific or prescriptive as to what that looks like because it really is about, uh, you know, I think about the diversity of lived experience, um, uh, capabilities, perspectives, uh, just your lives in, in this room. And, and it's, bringing, it's bringing that in to how we come at problems, how we think about opportunities. You know, we, we've already talked about, you know, um, Kath just sort of talking about the whole picture, you know, having the, the sort of whole picture, that the importance of diversity of, of thought. And I think it is... It is uh, what each of us as individuals uh, uh, can, can bring in to, to what we sort of do day to day and to contribute to that uh, diversity uh, of, of thought, working with others uh, to, 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 to come at these um, uh, uh, challenges. And I, I really like the way um, Abby too sort of talked about um, uh, this, this links into what I find motivating too. You know, we're, we're all involved in seeking to, to shape the, the future for our nation, for our, our Australians, and, and, and I think more broadly, it's a, it's a, it's a global focus too. So um, I know it's a, it's, a, it's a broad answer, Anna, but, but I think that just re reflects that it, it is hard to, to, to be prescriptive because each of us brings uh, something different. And I think to pick up uh, something that Caroline said earlier, I mean, just one thing I'd in, in encourage everyone to do is to be the active participant. Sometimes it's hard to know or we can kind of get caught up in what we're focused on today. Uh, you can kind of lose sight of the value that you bring. Uh, um, and, and so it's just, you know, always being conscious, you know, how can I be uh, an active participant? If, if sort of something's uh, you know, something sort of on your mind or you can see something, uh, use your voice too um, so that we can uh, embrace that, that the great diversity uh, that you all bring. Do we want to go to the Slido and have a look at that? Yeah, An update? sure. Um, I'm, I'm looking here at the question, how many women have you mentored before? Uh, and I'm seeing 60% is either um, none or one or two women. And that's wild to me. Um, there's a room full of people uh, that you haven't met before. It's a, you know, a new friend, a new mentor, a new mentee, a new contact. I'd encourage you to connect with each other uh, at the end of this. Um, go away with a new business card. Have a conversation with someone you've never met before. Um, and hopefully you'll get something good out of that over the long term. Um, I do think, though, that it, it takes courage 
courage to do that, even whether you're speaking up in a room or whether you're just approaching somebody uh, here at an event like this. I think a lot of people think that it's actually about confidence, that it takes confidence to uh, walk up to someone and speak to them. I don't think it does. I think confidence comes from the act of doing it repeatedly. I think the thing that you actually need first is just a little bit of courage. So find that bit of courage inside of you and hopefully you can go home today either with a new mentor or a mentee. Yeah, courage and and a bit of energy too um, so that you are actually curious about the person that you are engaging with, uh, that you do actually have a genuine interest. It's not just a case of you doing your elevator pitch uh, and explaining how fantastic you are, but it is a genuine conversation. So it's not just a case of a, a, a debrief on how fabulous you are uh, and your value proposition. Uh, it is a case of sort of actually engaging and, and being curious. I know that as a former member for, um, of Parliament, that was uh, the stories that I had, um, the conversations I had every day, each and every day were extraordinary. And um, everyone's got a story to tell. And so when you are engaging in the networking, try and draw that story out as much as possible and be curious and, and energetic in the engagement. Yep, absolutely. Okay, we have a question from Gemma Debkowski on behalf of Kethmi Gamage. Hi, um, Kethmi's question is for Abby. Um, she asks, what moments would you say have best helped you improve your leadership skills, both specifically and generally in cybersecurity? Thank you. Thank you um, for the question. Um, uh, I've said in my um, podcast, which no doubt you've all listened to. Repeatedly? <laughs> yeah. Did you? I'll have to listen to yours. Um, <laughs> actually, the things that have helped me the most in my national security leadership or leadership positions or career have been, one, the trickiest, nastiest problems... And two, the jobs I've hated the most. So um, let me go to the first one. The more wicked the issues are that I've been involved with and the more pressure I've been under, um, the more, and the older I've got, the more I'm capable of putting that past experience in a relative um, construct. Um, And the more I've learnt to offload some of that pressure on myself to others, delegating um, tasks, for example, collaborating across, not feeling at all um, uh, on myself, uh, understanding myself and my own response, as I said in my podcast, bracing, knowing I'm going to go into something very... um, uh, having that quiet moment to yourself where you go, this is going to be very hard... This is going to be very stressful. I am going to get very stressed. My team is going to get very stressed. How am I going to recognise the signs in that myself when my shoulders are suddenly up underneath my um, ears and have been for 48 hours or so? Um, uh, And how am I going to bring myself back down and centre myself so that I can um, last the distance because you're no good to your team if you if you can't do that. So those really hard moments have helped me with, with perspective and, and um, going into more and more complex positions with more and more responsibility. So don't run away from a fire is, I guess, what you're, I'm saying to you. Um, run, run into it um, with the appropriate PPE, obviously. <laughs> um, and the second is the jobs that I've hated the most. 
Um, and the jobs that I've hated the most have always been the corporate ones because they're the hardest. They're not the most glamorous. No one loves you when you're in HR or property or the chief risk officer. Everyone runs a mile when they see you um, coming. Um, but boy, oh boy, they teach you how to survive because they're the things that will kill you when you're actually leading an agency or a group, right? And they're the things that are going to kill you at a Senate estimates hearing or when the ANAO comes along. Is there anyone from ANAO here? Um, they are the things that will end your career as a public servant. And as a consequence of that, my advice to you is run into those roles too. Set yourself a deadline for how long you're going to spend in those roles. Do it, learn everything you can, and get on to the job that you really want. Just in terms of the, uh, the 48 hours of uh, your, your shoulders up like this, my Pilates instructor calls it wearing your shoulders as earrings. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit sort of 80s. We've all like, been I don't there. need an 80s suit. Pardon? <laughs> don't need an 80s suit. Yeah, well, the they're back. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the next question is um, to... Kath uh, Byrne, and uh, that's from Sarah No. So, Sarah? Hello, Sarah Ngo from the National Security College. Catherine, you've talked about diversity and culture. My question is how do you think men can contribute to creating more equality in the national security arena? Thank you. Well, um, I think, like all diversity, it's absolutely critical to have men uh, contributing as equally as everybody else to achieving real diversity and equal opportunity. I think, um, I think it's incumbent on everybody to make sure men uh, feel as if they can have a voice, that, that it is going to be heard and appreciated. Um, and I think we need men as our allies, uh, whether it's in the workplace or in other workplaces. People, men that you know and you trust, they need to be our allies. And there are... Most men are your allies. We need we need leaders as champions to lead from the front to actually behave in the way that should be um, part of the culture. Leading from the front, we need male role models. We need male communicators. Um, men are an absolute vital part of all of this because if if we don't have men in the equation, we we won't achieve what we need to achieve. But I also think. Um, men face barriers also, and 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 we need we men need to need to work to break down those barriers. We're starting to see it, but there is still stigma in workplaces for men who want to work part time, who might want to take parental leave, who might want to do flexible hours, who you know go and pick up the kids, drop them off at school. I think it's changing, but that. But there, there, there is a bit of a barrier that exists for men around that. And until we break that barrier, and it's, it's equally applicable to men and women, those sort of flexible hours so that we can all contribute to the equal opportunity, um, we, we, you know, we will continue to be on the back foot. So I think that all the, the energy that we need to put into this and the drive that we need to and the, the lots more work that we've got to do has to be focused also on on men and how we make sure men are an equal part of this journey. 
Absolutely, and I acknowledge that there are a few men uh, here today, so uh, thank you for coming out. You must be feeling very oddly out of place. <laughs> um, can, I, or can I just give an example? Just recently I did a... Um, uh, I was overseas and at one of our high commissions and we did a women in leadership uh, event at the high commission and uh, it was really great turnout, great event. Just as I, I was about to walk down to the room where it was held, I noticed that one of our, our staff, uh, a male, was still in the office typing away and I said, oh, you're not coming to the event and he said, he's pretty senior, he said, oh, I didn't think I was invited. I, I didn't think I would be included. And I said, well, I'm sorry if that's what you perceived or, or, or I wish that wasn't the case. But now that you've said that, you can come with me because you're going to come to the event. And he just said, okay. He came to the event and afterwards he came up to me and he said, that was the, the, one of the best things I have ever um, attended uh, real conversations about real issues, about real problems with real solutions. And and he said, some of those things I actually didn't really realise myself. So I, I've come away uh, with a greater understanding of some of the complexities. And he said, thank you. So I think I think we've got really got to include men in, in what we're trying to do. Yeah, it's incumbent on us, I think, um, to be... Uh, explaining our point of view as best we can so that it is heard um, and to be as inclusive in the same way that we want to be included. All right, our final question um, is from Marina Mito. Hi, thank you for this. Um, and uh, Marina from Rista Solution Group and Femme Insights and Security. And my question is around the buzzword of authenticity. And I think another thing that came out of COVID was people realised you can't leave your home life outside of work. Um, and sometimes authenticity isn't actually what the workplace wants. So how would you define authenticity? And this is to everyone on the panel. I'd like to go first. I might, I'll jump in. Um, thanks, Marina. Uh, for me, when I uh, think about authenticity, I, I think about alignment. Uh, and, and for me, it's alignment of uh, purpose, uh, so how I think about purpose, how does that align uh, with, with my organisation, uh, organisations that I'm, I'm working with. And it's all also about alignment of values. Uh, and, and for me, if I think about what does that look like, it comes back in the, the, the screen about what's most valuable has just come up again, culture. So how do we how do we do stuff, you know, ways of working, how is it that we, uh, how do we do stuff around here? So as a leader, I, I think a lot about to what extent am I uh, shaping the culture, the way of doing things, where, where I think, you know, that, that there's room and, and need for shaping uh, and to what extent is it shaping me because it is a two-way thing and how do I feel about that? Uh, and, and, you know, does it feel, is, is it authentic? Does it align with my purpose, my values? Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's how I see it. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to answer this through the um, slightly different lens of authenticity and leadership and, and my, my experience and how I feel about that. I find that the best leadership, the one that I respond best to and the best suit I can wear when I'm leading, I think of the word being authentic. And for me, that means um, 
letting the people know that I'm leading, um, that, that I am confident, that I'm on task, that I'm behind them, but also that I'm a real person and that I'm feeling it, um, that I make mistakes and authentically acknowledging and owning those mistakes and then openly taking advice on how you might course correct, authentically praising for what is good but authentically calling out what is underperformance in a respectful but direct way and I think we've still got some work to do on that um, in, our, in our sector. And, and I'm going to share something with you. When I mean sharing that I'm a real person, because sometimes it, it always shocks me that people feel a bit scared to approach you or talk to you. So I realised as I was sitting up here in the first five minutes that on my race out the door this morning, I didn't anticipate sitting on a stage and I wore knee-high stockings <laughs> with my short pants. <laughs> and so I've been sitting here the whole time thinking, gee, I wish I could cross my legs, but I'm scared my hairs will poke out. <laughs> because I'm a real person and I make real mistakes even when it comes to fashion. Is that why you wore socks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I sort of thought this would be the case. So, <laughs> dressed appropriately. Um, yes, I, I think uh, I, I remember early stages of uh, COVID when um, we were doing a phone hookup with a number of people and it had some people from overseas on the phone hookup and we're all in different places, of course. And um, I was actually at home, which was a bit unusual, and... Uh, joining in on the conversation, listening to others. And when I was listening, um, I was playing with my cat um, and I was playing with the ping pong with my cat and throwing the ping pong at the cat or at the wall and chasing and just just thinking that, you know, this this was fine and still participating in the, the hookup. And then somebody just sort of said, look, about five minutes into it, look, there's such terrible interference on this lion um, you know, uh, it, you know, must be f- because of the overseas connections, and we're going to have to hang up and dial everyone back in, and you know, can everybody, you know, uh, rejoin in about five minutes? And for that flash of a moment, I thought, should I admit to being the cause of the interference, <laughs> whether it was the ping pong ball, or should I, you know, <laughs> let it go? <laughs> I let it go. <laughs> And now everyone knows. <laughs> well, I did actually fess up a bit later. <laughs> um, in terms of authenticity, I think uh, I think people know when you're not authentic, and uh, and people generally are too polite to say anything about it, and they let it slide, or it's just this the way it is. But it might be a short-term gain, or it might be for a short term. But people remember, and sadly, the reality is people gossip. And um, it doesn't do much for your credibility. Um, so it can have a longer-term detrimental impact if you aren't authentic, for starters. But I th- also think um, to be authentic, uh, you, to be your real self, you have to know yourself. And that's a really hard thing to do because that does mean that self-awareness. It does mean introspection. And it does mean actually understanding not only your strengths but you know, your weaknesses as well. It, it means understanding what are those things that you get irritated about, really understanding why, and it's taking on feedback, being courageous enough to actually 
learn learn the things that can make you better. Um, so it's actually it's the self awareness part of it. So those who are authentic actually have really great self awareness, and they're not afraid of seeking feedback. They're not afraid of making themselves better and facing that. So I think it's it's something that we can all, all do in and because authenticity is one of the greatest things of leadership. If you're authentic, you've just it's just uh, you're, all, you're you're pretty much there as a leader. So I think it's about knowing yourself. I really like that point about um, self-awareness because people will always see you through their own lens, right? People, I'm sure you've experienced this. I've been called uh, difficult and challenging and aggressive um, and too complicated, Uh, but I've also been called uh, delightful and inspiring and a lot of really nice things, which is great. Um, But what matters is is how I know myself and that I turn up every day as myself because I know that people will always see me through their own lens and at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. As long as I'm authentic, that's what counts. What's it like for you, Gay, as a politician? Authenticity would have been really... Was it challenging? Yeah, well, yeah, so I'll I'll come to that because I just want to talk about fashion faux pas of today. Um, When we were out doing... I bought this new suit yesterday, uh, purple for um, suffragettes, and uh, if you hadn't got that message, uh, and... Uh, we were out doing our photo shoot and Meg turned to me and the tag was still on the outside. The do not re- you, you Basically, you take this tag off and you cannot return that fabulous purple suit, Gay. And so <laughs> there's me doing the photo shoot with the tag still on. So, yeah, um, yeah we do, all do have days of um, fashion faux pas. I mean, in terms of authenticity, it, it is a buzzword and it's sort of something that rankles with me a bit as a term uh, because for me it's just about being yourself and that is... As, as everyone said today, that can be really hard because that actually involves a lot of self-awareness in terms of actually finding yourself. And when I went into politics, I sort of got into politics because I wanted to shape public policy and I wanted to advocate for my community. I hadn't quite got the memo that, that people would see me as a leader in the community and that people would look to me to lead. That wasn't sort of really... And that I would be a public figure. That kind of freaked me out, the public figure um, issue. So... As a result, so early on, because I was in minority government, it was a very, very stressful time in government for Labor, I was very, very timid as a newly elected, newly minted MP. I was a very timid leader. Um, I very rarely stuck my head out. I did did stick my head out a few times and got smacked down mercilessly and that sort of basically pushed me back a number of steps. So it took me a long time to actually believe that I was a leader. And it was only when I actually started to advocate for a number of issues on my commu- from my community and started to have some success, I just thought, yeah, this feels great. I'm actually feeling really empowered and I love delivering for my community and I love delivering on, on public policy and I love leading. Uh, but as a result of actually... But it took until probably my second term to actually, for me, to be self-aware enough to understand that I was a leader and my community was looking to me to lead. And so I think that that's that's something that you need, all of you in this room, as leaders now, as future leaders of the nation, you need to actually, the first step is basically being yourself, but secondly, it's actually realising that you are a leader. And actually, through that, having the courage of your conviction and knowing as a result of having the courage of your conviction that you will make enemies, that people will disagree with you, 
that there'll be chatter about you about your marriage. I mean, my marriage is a complete write-off, according to um, Twitter. And, um, yeah, my husband, we'll have a sham marriage and my husband lives in Annandale and uh, someone was going to go and kick down the bins out the front of his house because they hated him so much. So there's all this chatter, there's all this nonsense and so there will be gossip around you. But you've just got to have the courage of conviction, set your moral compass, stick to that moral compass... Have respect, treat everyone with respect and dignity and just believe in yourself and believe in your, in your convictions and stick to them. Don't be swayed. I think that's great. What a great note to end on. Uh, have courage, be genuine, be transparent and be self-aware. Um, Thank you for joining us on this very special episode of the live recording of uh, the Winds podcast. It's been fantastic to have you all on the Winds journey. To our panellists, Catherine, Abigail, Nina, thank you so much for joining us today. Will you please give them a warm thank you? To all of you who asked a question today or submitted a question online, thank you as well. It takes a lot of courage to stand up uh, and speak in front of a room full of people. So a round of applause for you as well. Thank you. Any final words of wisdom from our panel? ASD.gov.au. <laughs> ONI.gov.au. And there's a whole diversity of careers in the broader national security community. We've started a war. Okay, and this is it. Until next time, thanks for listening. So that's it for the 2022 Women in National Security miniseries. We've loved creating the space to showcase so many amazing women, sharing their inspirational stories and experiences with listeners. If you haven't listened to them all yet, we have a link in the show notes to all the apps and some great new scholarship opportunities for women. We're planning a whole new mini-series for 2023, so stay tuned and thanks for listening. Listening.